Hey guys, I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. And this is The Culture Journalist. It's summer and things are opening back up. A year and a half after the start of the pandemic and loads of articles lamenting the end of the experience economy, we're suddenly getting inundated with event invitations, friends hitting us up to go out, and seeing people post photos of parties and concerts on social media. It's a lot. It's almost overwhelming. Andrea, you recently attended your first real deal full capacity concert, right? What was that like? Yeah, actually, it was just last night. It was Kamasi Washington and Earl Sweatshirt at the Hollywood Bowl, which is this iconic open air amphitheater here in L.A. It definitely felt like an event because it was so many people's first show, first night out since COVID hit, the musicians on stage included. Kamasi and his band played this thrilling song with five simultaneous melodies called Truth, the search for which he was saying took on a new meaning during the pandemic. So that was a pretty moving moment. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we had Earl Sweatshirt who came on stage and was like, damn, we were inside for a whole damn year. Like, I don't know how to stage banter anymore. Uh, I wish I was out there with you guys eating food. (laughs) So those two things together kind of felt like a good combined metaphor for the experience of being back. How so? Well, it was interesting watching a crowd of 18,000 people kind of negotiate that together and how we experience community. Uh, You know, there were definitely some more upbeat songs where you could feel the energy really teeming and people kind of starting to move, but at the same time, not sure, like, if they should get up and dance. There was a definite weirdness about, you know, how close we should all be, especially since the Delta variant is on the rise here. But at the same time, people were also introducing themselves to their neighbors when they sat down, which you definitely wouldn't have seen before. And of course, there were a lot of selfies going on. Uh, But it seemed like folks weren't sure if they like wanted to have their phones out or or wanted to be taking videos or like or what was kind of the new social dynamic when it comes to having our phones out at concerts now. Yeah, like the etiquette might be changing. And I know Part of that negotiation, of course, as you said, is technology and what role does the cell phone have in a live experience of music? Even though this was such a big moment for you, you've been talking about really wanting to go to a concert for a long time, you ended up spending a lot of time on your phone, right? I did. And that was because I was also at the show for work and I was helping do social media for the news outlet that I work for. So I was posting the whole night on stories on Instagram. It was a kind of a push and pull because sort of the last thing I wanted to be doing was thinking about Instagram or thinking about my phone and just kind of really being there in this major moment, really. I'd say it remains to be seen whether things will go back to people taking these moments for granted and, you know, capturing them for the clout, or if it's become so valuable to us now that people aren't going to do that anymore. Either way, variants notwithstanding, the experience economy is definitely back or on the way back. But today we're going to talk about a cottage industry that kind of flourished in his absence. Friends, we're going to be talking about the Collab House, also known as the TikTok Mansion or Hype House, which is a kind of influencer incubator where young social media celebrities shack up together to shoot TikTok videos, churn out brand deliverables, and just generally lead glamorous lives for the sake of turning those experiences into content. Just as it was beginning to feel like we couldn't read another piece about TikTok and the young people who dedicate their lives to becoming famous on it, a contributing editor at Harper's named Barrett Swanson came along and published a mammoth work of culture journalism about influencers that we really didn't know we needed. It's called The Anxiety of Influencers, Educating the TikTok Generation, and it's probably the best piece of journalism we've ever read on the topic. Not just because it takes us behind the scenes to show us what it's like to live in a world where your every word and gesture is fair game for broadcasting on the internet, but also because of the way it connects that Black Mirror-esque reality to the lives we live every day as artists and writers and academics and students and just lay internet users trying to figure out how much of ourselves we want to share with the world. 
and even the extent to which we can conceive of a self outside of the self we broadcast for other people to see. But the piece is more than an excoriation of the influencer industry. It's a deep analysis of Web 2.0 and the ways that its extractive logic has infiltrated into every sector of the culture industry, not to mention the depths of the human soul. And what makes the piece so powerful is the way that he connects what he observes during a reporting trip to a wildfire engulfed Los Angeles at a collab house called Clubhouse FTV or Clubhouse for the Boys with his own experiences as a journalist and professor. Andrea, I want to read what I found to be like the mic drop quote of this piece. Hit me. If we sneer and snicker at influencers' desperate quest to win approval from their viewers, it might be because they serve as parodic exaggerations of the ways in which we are all forced to bevel the edges of our personalities and become inoffensive brands. It is a logic that extends from the retailer's smile to the professor's easy A to the politician's capitulation to the co-worker's calculated post to the journalist's virtue signaling tweet to the influencer's scripted photo. The angle of our pose might be different, but all of us bow unfailingly at the altar of the algorithm. Mic drop indeed. And that brings us to our guest today, Barrett Swanson, the author of that piece. He's a contributing editor at Harper's and the author of Lost in Summerland, a great new book of essays in the same spirit of his article where he infiltrates different subcultures and niche communities across the country in an attempt to make sense of how the modern American experience unites us all. That's available now via Counterpoint Press. We'll be right back after this break. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We are pleased to welcome our guest, Barrett Swanson. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit just about how this piece in Harper's came to be. How did you find the collab house and get them to agree to doing this story? Yeah, a lot of my calls with publicists were virtually the telephonic equivalent of like a club bouncer putting your a hand on your shoulder saying, no, I don't, I don't think so, buddy. I mean, the phenomenon was so new that I didn't, you know, typically when I do a piece, I do so much um, prefatory research that I kind of know what the angle is going to be or kind of the interpretive lens uh, through which I'm going to be viewing this particular subject or this particular expedition. But with the collab house, like there wasn't a whole lot to absorb. And so I, I didn't know what kind of piece I was going to write. I surely didn't know that it was going to take this swerve into a discussion about higher education or just social media generally and sort of the cognitive program that I think social media encourages in, in all of us. And so, yeah, I, I just pitched it as I, I wanted to understand these people in this this culture. I was pretty skeptical that someone would be into it and, you know, just making any number of inquiries. Finally, I got an email back from Clubhouse who said, why don't, why don't you come out? I think the exact thing one of the talent managers said to me was like, you know, we don't want this to feel like you're coming into North Korea or something, but a media liaison is going to be with you at all times. So they, their trepidation was immediately legible to me. And as a person, apart from my status as a writer, as a person, you know, I was thinking about emotional fairness to, in terms of these these young people, you know, these are people who are my students' age. And so how I, was I going to dramatize what I was seeing faithfully while nevertheless, you know, honoring the fact that these are young people who've been conscripted either via financial incentive or misguided optimism into a, an industry and a, and a newfangled economy that is, but by the end of it, I thought, um, psychologically depleting and kind of um, manipulative in, in certain respects. 
For people who are listening who either haven't read the piece or just aren't familiar with the term, can you explain what a, a TikTok house or a collab house is? Yeah, sure. I think I describe it in the piece as like a grotesquely lavish abode, usually situated within Beverly Hills or somewhere across Los Angeles. But there are more of them sprouting up all across the country and even the world. I know there are influencer houses. But this letter of logic undergirding the collab house is that influencers will come shack up together and collab with one another in producing content. I'm a millennial, so my cultural touchstone for this would be something like the real world, except these kids are dropping out of college to come to these places and anywhere from eight to 15 influencers in a given house, um, usually between the ages of 15 and 28 all living together and kind of, you know, setting up tripods and ring lights and shimmying for their cameras. And some of these influencers own the houses themselves. They've kind of pooled together their money and they're either renting the mansions or they own the mansions based upon their exorbitant wealth that they've produced and influencing on other platforms, be it YouTube or Instagram. The house that that I spent time in was owned by outside investors who had purchased uh, a number of houses or renting a number of houses in Los Angeles and kind of inviting these influencers to come in and then taking as much as 20% of any brand deals they got while in residence at the house. But interestingly, the TikTok collab house phenomenon really coincided with the COVID pandemic. As lockdown happened, more and more influencers facing a dearth of regular activities by which they may have made content, going to malls or, you know, going on trips, etc. Absent any of those opportunities, they were forced to come up with other ways of engendering content. And, and for them, the idea of living in a palatial mansion with other um, influencers of their age and coming up with obstacle courses or dancing with their well-complected brethren um, seemed like a, a an expeditious way to make some content. So the collab house phenomenon is just, it's pretty new and it's, I think, evolving. And the house where I stayed, or the company that owns those houses where I spent time, they're actually now a publicly traded company. And I believe it's the first of, of their kind that are doing that. Wow. It's really interesting because what, what you were saying about the pandemic shifting this model for them and giving rise to more of these, because I feel like influencers were forced to reckon with the death of FOMO. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, like right when the pandemic started, I work as an editor at Vice, and I, I edited a piece that was like, is the pandemic the end of the influencer bubble? And there were a lot mm. of other pieces like that. Oh, it's the end of the experience economy the economy is collapsing and there won't be the same amount of money in brand deals for influencers mm -hmm. and so i actually didn't pay that much attention to this sector throughout the pandemic and then it was like mm -hmm. fascinating to see oh no actually it's gotten worse <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean um Regardless of whatever else you might say about the industry, I think they're incredibly savvy at finding new ways to produce content. Totally. And what was a typical day like for the young people at the collab house you were at, Clubhouse FTB? Yeah, it's interesting because early in my visit, one of the talent managers described their particular organization to me as an influencer university at which I took unbelievable umbrage being a university professor myself and knowing <laughs> full, full well that many of the influencers who were there had dropped out of college or had forewent college in order to try their hand at becoming an influencer in Los Angeles. And so part of me expected, you know, a more rigid or rigorous syllabus or kind of curriculum, thinking that in addition to producing content, there might be you know, seminars on navigating this industry or workshops. To use the term university, I think, is potent. And what it ended up being was just a useful heuristic for thinking about the disposition of each house. So there, one of the houses was built to me as like a grad school that contained their more seasoned influencers. And this was just people who had been in the industry 
since they were kids and were now like 22 or 23. Um, and then there was Clubhouse FTB, which is where I spent the majority of my time. And it stood for Clubhouse for the boys. And this was like a frat environment um, and appealed uh, allegedly to sort of an undergraduate crowd. And then they had Not A Content House, which has been rebranded to Just A House, I believe. And that was pitched toward an even younger demographic, kind of like your middle school or high school age people. And so the typical day that I saw was a buffet of hedonism, really. I mean, it was a lots of inane behavior, a lot of you know, horsing around, drinking, smoking weed, playing video games, basketball, putting together ideas for content, your standard laid out adolescent syllabus, <laughs> as it were. And, you know, some of the younger people were there, some of whom were in high school, would attend online school for like an hour or two in the morning, spend the rest of the day making content until like two, and then have what they described to me as a quote unquote normal day, which involves being 15 or 16 years old in you know, the cesspool of the social media industry in Los Angeles. Yeah, you, you capture so many great details about these young men and their day to day, like the their habit of like picking up a basketball game and then getting distracted in the middle of it and walking away <laughs> before the game even starts. I mean, how much of this feels like typical behavior for young men or just young people at this age? And what about that feels unique to this specific historical moment and context? I guess the genre of behavior doesn't seem that different than your typical late adolescent, but what was weird or what seemed particularly unique about this historical moment is that there was a camera almost constantly recording any and all activities ranging from the most banal incident to the most, you know, pyrotechnic spectacle. And really they were constantly looking for ways to harvest their everyday lives. So one of the influencers was on the phone trying to procure a French bulldog puppy and was getting it shipped to LAX the next day and having this conversation with the breeder on their smartphone while I was there. And immediately upon terminating the call, they turned to their talent manager and kind of breathlessly exclaimed that they could turn that into content. The, the pickup at LAX could be a YouTube video. And so the kind of thin difference between their virtual and visceral selves um, struck me as terribly bizarre, right? And that they're incentivized to do that. One of another influencer, this was from a, a different house. This was from not a content house. One of the influencers was describing to me wanting to have a quote unquote normal day, just hanging out with friends and not thinking about content and not posting their videos. And she was explaining to me that if she would do that, her videos after the fact wouldn't do as well. And her numbers would go down because the algorithm depends on consistency and the sort of relentless bombardment of content. You become more relevant based upon how frequently you post. And so there was this kind of low wattage anxiety about not posting enough or not broadcasting one's daily life enough. So they really in some sense, we're in a very profound way, I think, beholden to the algorithm. That was the thing that struck me as potentially pernicious psychologically and also utterly different than at least how I thought about my daily life as a young person. Did, do you ever see anyone like get reprimanded or face consequences from their house mansion overlord for like <laughs> opting to take a break or anything like that? Or was this mostly kind of self-driven I think it was self-driven. There is this ambient competition taking place. As much as everyone, you know, has Colgate white smiles and is really supportive of one another with a kind of uh, like effervescent enthusiasm, underneath that kind of jocularity is a real sort of cutthroat competition. But just like asking each other how many views a certain post got or when they would talk to me about their brand deals and how much money they made, it was legible in their the other listeners' faces, like jealousy or feelings of insecurity. And some of them were quite open about that kind of competitive uh, despair. It's like looking around and thinking, why does this friend of mine have X number of followers and I don't? And so 
when you're a young person tutored in that kind of existential calculus, I think um, it's hard not to sort of become caught up in, in the logic that says, okay, I need to keep posting. I need to come up with more content. The extremity of my content needs to be thought about. I need to calibrate things so that I don't become irrelevant. You know, relevance, I think, is tantamount to what an earlier age would have called virtue in terms of existential worth. Going back to the idea that this is a university or what, I don't know, it's just such a flip when I think of the, the liberal arts experience and how, at least when I went to college, you were supposed to be insulated from the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, I know that you also work as a university professor. You teach a course that sounds very intriguing and like one that I wish I could have taken when I was in college called Living in the Digital Age. <laughs> what about that experience, that background made you curious about this world? You know, my spouse jokes that uh, even as long as like a decade or a decade and a half ago, I was like the Greg Kinnear character and you've got mail just kind mm-hmm. of like endlessly annoying my friends with full-throated jeremiads about, <laughs> you know, how social media was affecting our psyches, etc. And so I've long been interested in the ways in which uh, social media affects personhood, if only because I've, I've noticed among my students um, the ways in which they talk about it and the ways in which it seems to tarnish various aspects of their self-esteem. And the ways in which they talk about it, interacting with it, um, gave me pause. And so I wanted to better understand why I was trepidatious about it, why I was reluctant to go on it, how I saw the surveillance economy happening, um, why I thought self-branding was in keeping with certain trends, namely neoliberalism that I thought were corrosive to public discourse. And so when I started seeing things about influencer culture, I mean, there were there was the more readily obvious fact of my students just being kind of interested in these people and talking about collab houses or openly professing to me their ambitions to either become an influencer or toying with the idea of leaving school and going to Los Angeles to try to become one. And so that was the most immediate impetus behind seeking out this topic. But uh, there was also just like the more personal curiosity about how the logic under which they were living their lives didn't strike me as terribly different from the logic that informs so many other industries of which I myself am a part, both the university itself and the world of writing and publishing and the world of cultural commentary. So that that ended up being my goal in the piece is to think about how, how this culture was actually implicating me at a certain point I found myself feeling like I would be remiss if I wasn't just acknowledging like, yeah, you know, this is happening in the university too, or the ways in which we're we're asked to ingratiate ourselves with our students or present ourselves as a kind of brand to advertise our classes on Facebook to stay quote unquote relevant, to say nothing of the fact that how we're asked to tutor our young people and thinking about themselves only as potential um, members of the workforce and to to professionalize themselves accordingly, there was no getting around the fact that this was implicating me and that this was implicate, I hope anyway, readers too. I definitely felt implicated. Did you, Andrea? I felt implicated. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's also what makes it such a successful piece too. When you think back to your own experiences at that age, how was your own sense of self shaped by technologies and social media of the time? And and what has changed? I was meditating on this with some friends the other night when we were talking about like instant messenger and how that that was actually a real formative component of becoming a writer. I, who, you know, am neurologically predisposed to kind of cloister myself and hide out, really found 
solace and refuge and instant messenger as like a 13 and 14 year old. Suddenly I would come home after school and be unbelievably chatty on that platform, but it was private, right? And it was for the most part insulated from the marketplace, right? We were not necessarily fashioning a self in public view. So that, that was different. Right. Quite the opposite. You could be anyone you wanted to be on those platforms back then. Right. Yeah. And it it had more resonance with, you know, traditional forms of correspondence, like letter writing or something like that, even in its pixelated and sort of fragmentary nature or whatever. But I guess when I, I was on Facebook for basically like a half an hour. And at that point, I mean, I was pretty young. I had an eyebrow ring and and hair. I still had hair at that point. So it was a long time ago. But even then, I just felt like it was bizarre. And knowing a little bit about the fact that it was created by a Harvard sophomore with, you know, brain dead preoccupations. I mean, the, the beta stage of Facebook was hot or not, right? So there's, there was misogyny built into the design. There were definitions of personhood that I just felt were crass and superficial, defining yourself by you know, the products you consumed or the brands that you like. It felt strange to me. So I, I avoid it and continue to avoid it, you know, mostly from because I have the nervous system of a small child. And so I don't think that I would do well long term on, on those things. But yeah, I mean, it's the, the ways in which I think that it's become monetized is the real scary component. You know, as I talk about in the piece, 54% of people between the ages of 13 and 38 would, if given the chance, become an influencer. And so many other industries are figuring out ways to use influencers that I'm, I'm a little bit wary of the moment in which influencers start to enter into our political life even more forcefully than they already have. And then there's also, of course, the ways in which someone who is a politician, somebody who is a journalist... Anybody in the public sphere has to become an influencer as well. No, totally. And the machinations of who's actually controlling the puppet strings, if you will, behind the scenes of these are hidden by this like very aspirational mm. concept that's tied to it. It's, it's essentially, it's the new sleeker, faster, more monetizable version of celebrity. Right. You think of the conceit of people saying, when I grow up, I want to be famous. Mm-hmm. You know, because of all the the freedom and luxury, money yeah. recognition that that provides, and this is so the same thing, but it just feels a lot more like packaged and dystopian, like industrialized. Yeah, I mean, like so many other social media platforms that promise to provide a kind of democratic utopia, or you know, a swift and untrammeled access into celebrity. Like any number of talent managers when I was in LA were speaking to me in evangelistic tones about the ways in which you could be, you know, an ordinary kid in Cleveland, Ohio, and overnight you could get, you know, a million followers. And they, they even expressed to me, like, you know, if I had a few of the influencers in the house tag me in a post, I could have a half a million followers by the end of the weekend, which was, you know, not at all appealing to me. But this idea that anyone could have their Horatio Alger story via TikTok and that it, it was the the next expedient toward achieving the American dream. Do you remember that? I can't remember the man's name, but his TikTok handle was like 420 dog face and he did the the longboarding to work um, while drinking the, the cranberry juice. Yeah, exactly. And, th- and this was, you know, I mean, there was a rash of good morning American type stories about like I mean, essentially, they were treating it like the embodiment of, you know, like the regs to riches story. And mm-hmm. the truth is that I heard many rumors while I was in Los Angeles that TikTok accepts payment to push posts on the For You page. And of course, there's the fact that a, a video is more likely to do well when you already have more followers and it's going to get pushed by the algorithm. So the extent to which that this is a purely democratic terrain, and I think is is complicated by just the already existing hierarchies that one brings to bear when they go on the platform itself. And there's also like with Twitter and maybe other platforms, there's a slot machine like gambling quality to it where yeah. you know, it's there. You see the example of the person like that guy in, in that, you know, admittedly 
pleasing viral TikTok with the cranberry. Yeah. And that that tells you, oh, if I keep posting here, I will, you know, hit the viral jackpot. But a lot right. of people I'm sure don't. And also I'm sure a lot of people who do, or I've spoken to people who do have horror stories about how awful that was when they actually hit this viral yeah. jackpot. And, and it's also weird to like take a step back and think about like, what does that say about what the American dream has become? Mm. I, I grew up believing that, oh, the American dream is you work really hard and it eventually pays off or something. Mm. And that's, you know, a myth, totally a myth in and of itself. Right. What is this American dream that's being communicated? You do something like really extreme and then it pays off. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that the influencers expressed to me was that within the the calculations they made in order to stay relevant, they had to walk a fine line of courting controversy while remaining brand friendly. One um, influencer, you know, said, you, you don't want to waste your time just making a dance. Like sometimes it's it's far better to like jump off a building into a pool because that's going to do better. And so it's like, yeah, what is the terminus of that? conception of daily life. I just don't know. My own status as someone who teaches in the humanities, you know, the books that I teach and the, the, the ways in which I talk about narrative and storytelling and being able to cultivate meaning, I hope that that's one of the, the, the last places where a competing view of personhood is being forged. But of course, the broader array of forces that are influencing the university system itself have made that more difficult. As I talk about in the piece, our former governor of Wisconsin tried to change our university system's mission statement from something like to seek the truth and improve the human condition to meeting the state's workforce needs. And so there's a sense in which we're being enjoined as professors to see our students not as human beings who are in some sense suffering with the ordinary unhappinesses that maybe that Freud described, but as, as just potential members of the job market, right? And that our job is to to equip them with some, you know, tool belt of rhetoric and logic that's going to make them employable. You have a great line in the piece where, you know, you describe these influencers and, you know, I'm sure us by proxy as, quote, laboring in a system that asks them to create themselves in full view of the public. How did operating in this context at such an impressionable age seem to be impacting their sense of self? And, you know, also, how do you see it impacting your students? Well, I mean, I think that it it fosters conformity. Um, I think that it fosters insecurity. I think that it fosters inauthenticity. Well, there's an extent to which I think the, the whole notion of authenticity has fallen by the wayside because of the amount of time that these influencers anyway are presenting themselves on online that whatever demarcation once existed between their private and public selves is kind of being erased or the logic of profit and followings that motivates their public life so thoroughly has infected their private life that there's no meaningful distinction between those two things you know one of the influencers said to me like what eats a lot of us at night is the concern that what if all this goes away and nobody cares about what we're making anymore and what if your life was worth nothing? And seeing one's self-worth as bound up by its reception on a multinational tech platform, right, is so exquisitely despair-inducing for me. That I don't even know... Uh, how to proceed. I, I, w- I found myself at a loss when I was in that room and listening to him say that. But the extent to which one has to cultivate a brand to stay relevant as a writer, the extent to which one has to cultivate a brand in order to receive tenure as a university professor. I mean, the calisthenics of mind and action that are required of us when we're asked to be members of this passion economy where so much of our life is up for scrutiny and review online. I think it it weighs so heavily on us and it curbs exploration. It affects how daring 
we are in our thoughts and in our convictions. If anything, I think it's hard to express just how thoroughly it affects us because we've already become a nerd to it. The ubiquity of the activity that so many of us present ourselves these way and, and engage in, in the, these economies of influence makes it more difficult to draw the contours of just how precisely it's affecting us. But, you know, whatever was gratifying about the reception of the piece to me was feeling like whatever ambient anxieties that I was feeling whenever I thought about these things seemed to be resonating with readers. And so hopefully this this is, a, you know, part of a, a reckoning. Totally. Part of what made this piece so powerful for me, too, was just seeing that being articulated and thinking about how, why don't we talk about this more? (laughs) Journalists are Mm -hmm. so caught up in this entire system and like, I'm sure silently suffering Mm -hmm. with these same existential issues. Whether they have tens of thousands of followers or 10 followers, I've never met anyone who's like, yeah, I love, I love this part of my work, you know? (laughs) And yet people don't really talk about it openly it's almost like there's like a fear of talking about it openly or maybe a feeling that if if you talk about it and admit that it's causing you pain that you're kind of unfit to survive within this world right right or like it's a bad look for publications that want to hire you right and that going along with it is just unquestionably good and what must happen (laughs) totally and the distribution platforms for the work that we do are operating on principles. And it's really, you know, transparently become that <laughs> succeeding in one's work means being able to sort of predict what will yeah. play well on, on these algorithms. Yeah. The way that I think about my own work, I'm like so allergic to the voguish condemnations, like the types of pieces that like we were talking about earlier, you know, when I went on the trip, they kept asking me, it's like, this going to be a hit piece? Is this going to be a hit piece? Whoa. And I was so baffled by that because I myself as a writer just don't feel drawn to that kind of story. It just seems so breathtakingly easy to win the video game of social media by doing the kind of voguish condemnation of something and so mm. when i when i take up a piece i'm always looking for the moment where yes these are people who are immersed or steeped in a totally bonkers subculture or have been conscripted into an industry that is strange and kind of comedic but why am i here what is it actually expressing like for me anyway, as a writer, I, I'm just always trying to like come by my own complicity honestly within a piece. So In your piece, you touch on the idea of TikTok as a powerful tool for political expression, like something that not only these guys themselves seem to believe, but also a prominent New York Times journalist, Taylor Lawrence, who you refer to in the piece. How much do you buy into this optimism that TikTok is a vehicle for improving the material conditions of our lives? I don't buy into it at all. I think when you have a platform where you know, multi-million dollar companies are advertising and where you have influencers shilling for brands and who are motivated by profit in order to post certain content and a platform that is also proliferating conspiracy theories at an equal or greater rate than activist causes. I just think that like unbridled optimism about the political efficacy of this platform is, I think that's running down a blind alley. Like any other social media platform, it's going to be a host and hive for good things and bad things, and it will affect the discourse in any number of ways. But ultimately, it, uh, it seems anyway, based upon the hallmarks uh, that, that I've noticed thus far, it seems to be perpetuating the very structural inequalities that are already existing in the culture. I think you had a great Walter Benjamin quote in there. 
in the piece about mm. that? Yeah, he says that the reigning hegemonic powers are always looking for ways to help individuals or populations or polities to express themselves aesthetically without having to reform their lives materially. And so giving people a platform to vent their grievances um, in some way provides this vessel or this kind of snorkel for catharsis, even as everybody remains underwater, at least financially or structurally, right? Obviously, he was writing it at a time before social media, but his point nevertheless remains relevant for us, I think. We've been talking a lot about, you know, even as you were researching for your piece, like you just do a lot of research on TikTok and there's a lot out there that tells you about the larger frameworks at play and, you know, a mm. lot of perils of it. How aware did you get a sense that these influencers are of that? Are they aware of this too and just choosing to ignore it or have they somehow been sheltered from it? I, I allude to this maybe a little bit in the piece, but they are loud mouthed exponents of TikTok as a news source. They were describing it to me as being better than traditional news media, um, that they were getting unbridled access to quote unquote what's really going on. And so when their conception of current events is informed by 30-second clips that are fragmentary, chaotic, basically incoherent, at least the influencers with whom I spoke, they weren't tottering over to the New York Times to get their you know, daily news, right? And so I don't know that they know much about TikTok's operations, its procedures, the stories about suppression of content, those sorts of things. Because that's not the news source that they're looking at to begin with. Precisely, yeah. They went through their phones and looked at like their screen time, about how much time they were spending on their phones and how much time they were on particular platforms. And it was 9, 10, 12 hours on TikTok, things like that. So they themselves are, as much as they are producers of the content, they're also consumers of it. And I would say that they're enthusiastic consumers of it. Ultimately, the story of these influencers feels like a very exaggerated, almost like parodic example of the effect that social media is having on our lives. In your piece, you refer to it as bowing unfailingly at the altar of the algorithm, which I love. What do you see as the most disturbing consequence of the state of affairs, psychologically speaking? Do you, do you see it going away or changing? No, um, sadly, I don't see it going away. I mean, maybe down the line, but I don't think we've reached the the bottom, as it were. I think increasingly more and more industries are going to come to rely upon the dictates of relevance, online relevance, and having a, a social media personality, and that one's brand or like the concept of self-branding will become just as important as exercise and hygiene, et cetera. Probably the most upsetting psychological consequence was an inability to fashion a self apart from its reception online. And the sort of little burbles of sadness that I saw coming to the surface when I'm speaking with the influencers and worrying about what does a life look like when their fleeting celebrity on social media goes away. And they're, they're aware of it. I mean, it would be mischaracterizing them to say that they have grievously naive notions of, you know, this working out for everybody. I think they know that there's a sunset for some of, of them and they're trying desperately to parlay their social media celebrity into other industries. And as a university professor who sees students fostering a sense of self and a sense of personhood and a sense of identity within the university watching these influencers not having that experience or having that experience in a realm where they exist within the panopticon of pixelated judgment the the levels of anxiety and depression among my students and these influencers is deeply concerning to me and you know as i say in the piece i don't think it's casually related to the ways in which um, our culture defines relevance and worth, even unwittingly, right? You know, as we were talking about earlier, within even the realm of, of media, how the size of one's followings 
affects not only the dissemination of one's work, but also one's regard in the profession and all, all sorts of things. So, yeah. Yeah. There used to be a time where I believed like, oh, success as a journalist is how good you are at writing. <laughs> I don't know. But it's ex- exposure. It's like how many people are, are going to read it. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think a lot about as someone who doesn't have a social media presence at all. But it's also like, it's interesting that you don't use social media and you're still feeling this pull. You're still feeling these pressures and you get them and you articulate them in the story. So if even dropping off of social media is like not enough to resist these pressures, is there any sense of resistance to this trajectory for you? Or like, is there any escaping? What do you turn to for solace? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not on these platforms and I feel marginally healthier not being on them or not being relentlessly bombarded by the logic of those platforms. But as you say, right, like it's hard, even standing outside of it, you're still, you know, downstream from the atmosphere. It's a weather system that sort of loiters over everybody, even if you're not actively being rained on. Um, and so... I think just relentless interrogation of the platform, I think that's a meaningful action. I think exposing what's good about it and mercilessly diagnosing what's bad about it is really all we can do. I think too much of the culture has been subsumed into its logic and it's too um, lucrative really to be dismantled and for all of us to go back to scribbling on papyrus and, you know, (laughs) sending each other letters or whatever. I just, obviously that's not going to happen. I mean, I think there are ways of using it humanely. I guess that's the thing that I, that I try to cultivate in my students because they're so thoroughly immersed in it. Asking them to conceptualize a life extracted out of it is just kind of like a fool's errand. But thinking about, well, what sort of habits of mind can allow them to engage humanely with these things and to be mindful of the ways in which their casual usage is actually supporting gross economic logic of neoliberal capitalism or that it's enforcing certain social inequities. And so getting them to interrogate it the same way they would interrogate a text or an argument it is sort of where I'm finding a modicum of <laughs> meaningful resistance anyway. But yeah, I don't, that's all I've got. Sadly, I don't have some, some grand uh, tonic for this problem. No manifesto <laughs> in the back of your pocket. No. Yeah. <laughs> Interrogating sounds about right to me. I also do want to say that, you know, there are lots of people, especially artists and creatives who are, trying to work on creating alternative platforms and alternative solutions. And I see a lot of hope in that, especially like, you know, the whole discourse around like web two versus web three and that, you know, I'm sure there will be lots of bad things about web three, but we don't have to be stuck in this particular landscape of platforms for the rest of our life. There's yeah, there's cause for hope. Um, Definitely. Definitely. So you have a new book out. It is called Lost in Summerland. It's a collection of essays and it is excellent. Recommend it to everybody who's listening. If you like this article, there's a lot more of that in there. And the book centers around the social upheaval engendered by the collapse of the grand narrative in American culture and the fringe fascinations and ideologies that people gravitate to as they look for meaning and stability amid the chaos. Mm -hmm. In what way does the story of TikTok influencers feel of a piece with this larger story in your book? I think that the TikTok article takes place at a moment when the West Coast was on fire. I flew into Los Angeles, and as soon as we came into California's airspace, basically the window was engulfed in smoke, and whatever pockets of uh, lucidity the plane found, uh, we could see the fire. And it was a moment in the course of the pandemic when 50,000 Americans were getting uh, diagnosed with COVID every day. And so 
there was a sense in which we were coming to the end of something. This was um, in the run-up to the, the 2020 election. And I guess TikTok struck me as this wonderland of wishful thinking, that when one logged onto the app, there was a sense of caprice and whimsy and just glittering escapism. Everyone was giggling and everyone was dancing, and it seemed so far afield from the headspace that I myself was occupying at the time that it felt like a way in which people were coping. And so many of the pieces in my book are about the ways in which um, people are struggling to find, in the absence of sort of traditional religions or political affiliation or any sort of trust in one's government or trust in some sort of larger social organization, our skepticism, I think, generally of systems and structures, the ways in which Americans have been embracing surrogate ideologies or things like techno-utopianism, things like New Ageism, things like spiritualism. And all of these things tend to come in under the banner of progressivism, that they end up promising to ameliorate certain social forces that are causing inequities or causing psychic harm. And I find during the course of doing these pieces that usually they're perpetuating, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes um, intentionally, the very things that they hope to redress. And I'm not sure that the TikTok piece necessarily follows the grammar of that kind of dramatic storyline, but I do think that, you know, at least the influencers that I met were hoping that TikTok was this yellow brick road to personal fulfillment and self-realization and fame. And of course, what I found was that at the end of that road is a deep well of anxiety, insecurity, and fear, to say nothing of a platform that is spawning conspiracy theories, breeding misogyny, contributing to the very structural concerns, or providing a platform or broadcasting some of the very structural concerns that the more utopian rhetoric around that platform uh, suggests it can redress. And so if they, yeah, if there's a correspondence between the TikTok piece and those articles, I think it's that. It's the desperate quest for some way of living big-heartedly, I guess, a way of living virtuously at this moment so frequently yields a, a headspace or, or a daily existence that actually is just in keeping with the same forces that it, that it claims to solve. The book begins with you in Florida and feeling a bit adrift. Then you take us through all these different niche communities, like the web sleuth conspiracy community. There's mm. the gatherings for men looking to, you know, work through their masculinity. Mm. After infiltrating all these groups, like what did you find that these people had in common? What did they have in common with you, the Barrett Swanson we meet at the beginning of the book? Yeah, the book in large measure was born of like a personal crisis that I had in my mid 20s when I was fatally sad. Um, near fatally sad and really was lost in a profound way. I didn't quite know it at the time, but each of these essays ended up being one facet of a larger exploration about trying to make heads or tails of what should have meaning and what shouldn't have meaning. You know, I began to conceptualize things like depression, which so often in our culture is seen as some sort of genetic misfortune. I began to understand that as the after effect of living within certain cultural conditions and certain definitions of what it means to be a person at this moment. I guess the, the similarities between me and the people that I meet are, in large measure, they, they were broken in some way. They'd either faced seismic financial turmoil, they'd either had similar experiences with suicidal ideation that I had, they had suffered addling trauma, the loss of loved ones in irresolvable circumstances. So I'm thinking of the piece in which um, I describe how my friend was found in the Mississippi River after a night of drinking while in college with virtually no explanation of how he ended up there. I kept 
encountering people who, I mean, in many ways were radically different than I, but were, were similar in the sense that they too were trying to find some sort of narrative framework upon which they could lay their experiences to, to resolve them. And for me, there, there's like an emotional or intellectual undertow of the book. I really begin the book in a place of profound depression and in a place of, well, of wanting to kill myself. I mean, the book talks about suicidal ideation. And by the end of it, I, I, I arrive somewhere else um, in a different place. And I sensed a similar kind of questing among many of the people that I met in these various communities. And that was actually the thing that, that I think allowed me to traverse whatever distance remained between us. Sometimes I would encounter people with whom I had vociferous disagreements politically or whose experience would just run counter to my own, but that I found some connection with them in seeing how they were looking for a narrative in the same way that I was. It was that sort of warped distortion of mind, seeing how they had fallen into some similar narrative pitfall that, that allowed me to sort of be willing to write about them. Because I won't, I won't write about a community unless I can see how their experience runs parallel to my own. It doesn't necessarily collide with it, but maybe it runs parallel to it. If I can understand what's drawing them to this this place that might be otherwise characterized as harebrained or out there or fringe, et cetera. It's amazing how the writing itself also becomes an articulation of that questing and seeking for you. Yeah. In one of my classes, I teach uh, Wittgenstein, and he has this, I think it's in the philosophical investigations that he has this line. He talks about how a picture held us captive by which he means that the language that we use to describe our reality or our situation can often draw the parameters around what kinds of emotional or intellectual experiences we have. It can fundamentally dictate the contours of our perceptions and our experiences. And I mean, I don't want the book to be read as like a Tuesdays with Maury type, like emotional or spiritual (laughs) journey, you know, but I do think that there's a way in which the essays are really just one person's earnest attempt to sort of disentangle these various cultural narratives about what has meaning and to sort of hold them up for scrutiny and say, well, how is this narrative in some sense holding me captive, either emotionally or intellectually? And how is it inhibiting us from moving forward either individually or in terms of our conversations with one another or the ways in which we regard one another? So if you backed me into a corner, I think that's the kind of ethos that undergirds so many of the pieces that I do is trying to figure out how this particular narrative is holding us captive and the sort of emotional reasons why someone would embrace that narrative. I think that's just such an important tack to take as any kind of storyteller or person who's trying to document what's happening around us. Like you won't write about something unless you can kind of feel a slight resonance between something that you yourself are experiencing. Yeah, writing from a place of empathy, even if it's like the most far-fetched shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just think it, it would be too easy to do anything else. But there's also the sense in like which like when you've occupied the darkest headspace imaginable, and, and I've, there have been a couple of times in my life when I've sort of been immersed in that space, you become unutterably willing to interrogate other ways of conceptualizing your experience, right? And when you encounter these people in these fringe communities, you can see maybe that there were desperate reasons motivating them to go to those places. They're looking for solutions to problems that I think many of us have. The particular flavor of their solution might strike us as strange, but I think the essential ingredients of their despair, their anxiety, their insecurity, their feelings of lostness, at least for me, they resonate. It would feel like a betrayal of what I've dealt with personally to do anything less than just try to understand them as best I can. Well, Barrett Swanson, thank you so much for this conversation and for your work. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm terribly gratified to be here. 
This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and Andrea Dominic. Our theme music was composed by Mark Donica. To read Barrett's article and check out more of his work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you're hearing, show us some love by sharing this episode or leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.